Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. In the movie Casino Royale, famous spy James Bond pretends to be a high-rolling poker player in an attempt to take down the villain. In trying to accomplish his goal, he needed to go undetected so that he could infiltrate the bad guys and try to cause the most damage and and take them down. If you've seen the movie, you know that things don't go quite as he planned, and spoiler alert, his cover is blown. Now today's passage portrays a somewhat similar scene, except instead of having James Bond trying to save the day, what we see is we have the, the enemy. Satan, the devil, trying to infiltrate and cause damage to the newly established and rapidly growing community of Jesus' followers, the church. You see, in Acts chapter 4, we saw the church experience its first bout of outside persecution. Peter and James are arrested by the religious leaders. Satan tries to derail the church by outside pressure, right? But what was the result of that external persecution? Great unity, great grace, great power, and great care. The church was actually strengthened from that persecution. Probably not what Satan had in mind as he tried to attack in that way. Wait a minute, now they're stronger. They're more united than ever before. So, in chapter 5, we see him instigate a new strategy. He switches tactics. Try to attack the church from within. Try to create internal issues in order to disrupt the unity, in order to hinder the power that they have, in order to to stop the witness of Jesus, in order to try to taint the reputation with deception and hypocrisy. So if what we learn from chapter 4 is that a little persecution might actually be good for the church, what we're going to learn in Acts 5, 1 to 11 is that any amount of hypocrisy is always bad for the church. It's always bad for the church. So this passage zooms in on these two people, Ananias and Sapphira, this couple, and and it shows us this act. What did they do here? Well, the act that they did was deliberate deception. Look again, verse 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' Feet. So uh, a Bible reading tip, every time you see the word but, you know it's directly connecting with what came beforehand. All right? So Luke is trying to contrast verses 1 and 2, chapter 5 here, with the end of chapter 4. So if you look at verse 36 and 37 of chapter 4, you see this story that is in direct contrast with Ananias and Sapphira. It says, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you have this example, Barnabas, fueled with, with uh, gospel-focused generosity, he went and he sold the field and he donated all the money to the church. All right? That would create a little bit of a buzz. Wow, did you, did you hear what Barnabas did? Did you see what Barnabas did? Now, it's important for us to know right off the the get-go that the church did not demand this. Barnabas' act of generosity was voluntary, okay? Believing in Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, 
had radically changed his life and had completely reoriented his priorities. And that's maybe something we can think about. For those of us here, we say that we, we believe in Jesus, we profess faith in Jesus. Has, has our life experienced any kind of radical change? Have our priorities shifted? Have they been reoriented at all since coming to know Jesus? Barnabas' life was completely changed. And so in contrast to Barnabas, what happens in chapter 5 here is this example of deliberate deception by Ananias and Sapphira. Perhaps, perhaps they wanted some of the the reputation, the notoriety, the fame that, that Barnabas received. Hey, everybody's talking about Barnabas. Maybe they wanted some of that. They wanted to get noticed. You know, maybe they wanted just a lot of praise from people. Maybe they wanted to see their names on the wall of donors. Oh, look, there's us. Look how much we gave. You know, we're generous too. It's hard to tell. We don't know all of the motives behind their act, but the text does tell us that they planned this out and they worked together. It wasn't spontaneous. They kept back some of the money for the sale, from the sale of the property for themselves. And you might sit here and think, what's the big deal with them selling some property and only giving part of it? There's actually nothing wrong with that. The issue is that they were claiming it was all of it. They were saying, we sold it and this is everything. They were pretending to be more generous than they really were. Deliberate deception determined hypocrisy, simulated holiness. They're faking it. They're faking it. And what happens? Verse 3, Peter confronts this. He's filled with the Spirit, and he has this ability to understand what's going on miraculously. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He confronts them. And they realize that their plan had been found out. Their cover was blown. Now, it's really interesting. I want to focus in for a second on this phrase, Satan filled your heart. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? We have clear information that Satan is involved in this. This is not just two people working, working together and doing an act of, of hypocrisy here. The evil one himself is at work, clearly. In Scripture, it tells us, Satan has filled your heart. So, sidebar for a second. The Bible clearly teaches the existence of spiritual forces of evil, which Satan is the chief of, and that these forces, Satan, he will do whatever he can in his limited power to try to destroy the unity of the church, try to destroy the witness of the church, especially when that church is pushing back the darkness and proclaiming the gospel and lives are being changed and hearing about the message of salvation. Satan's going to try to counter that. Okay? Now, This does not mean that every time we're tempted or every time that we sin, that we can just blame it on the devil. Well, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it. Every single time that there's temptation, it's obviously Satan. No, James clearly tells us that we're often tempted by our own evil desires from within us. I want this, I don't have it, I want this, I'm going to do this. So, the Bible teaches us that sometimes the issue is us and our own sinful hearts, right? But sometimes... Satan does specifically engage, and there is a specific attack. We tend to operate on the extremes. Either we think everything is the devil and give him all the credit and all the attention, or we go the other way and say, oh, there's no way it could be. But there is actually a balance balance in Scripture. Here in Acts 5, Satan is clearly attacking the church by seemingly planting this idea of deception and hypocrisy into the heart and mind 
of Ananias and Sapphira. And deception, I mean, that's just par for the course for Satan. Okay? In John 10, 10, uh, Jesus tells us that the thief, Satan, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Like, that's his M.O. In John 8, 44, Jesus tells us that he's a murderer, that he's a liar, and he's the father of lies. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan appears, taking the form of a serpent, and lies to Eve. Oh, no, no, you won't die. Don't worry about it. Just eat the fruit anyways. It'll be fine. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. In Ephesians 6, 11, we're told to put on the full armor of God. Why are we told to put on the full armor of God? So that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. What are his schemes? Lies. Deceit. These are his main tools that he uses. Scripture also teaches us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That he, he puts on a mask. That he pretends to be one of the good guys. Like That's the epitome of hypocrisy. Pretending to be what you're not. And his desire as he masquerades as an angel of light is to, for us to give in to deception and hypocrisy, to follow his way of life. And it seems like Ananias and Sapphira fell into the trap of living dishonestly. Women's Day magazine surveyed 2,000 people a little while ago, and they asked them various questions about their honesty Level And two, two things kind of stuck out to me out of this survey. The first was that 68% of people admitted that they had taken office supplies for personal use at least once. Okay? But the one that really stuck out to me, 40% of people admitted that they would cheat on their taxes if they knew they wouldn't get caught. 40% admitted they would cheat on their taxes if they knew they wouldn't get caught seems like Ananias and Sapphira believed they wouldn't get caught. Nobody would find out, except that someone did find out, or more accurately, always knew. God, omniscient, all-knowing, who knows everything, who is never fooled and can't be fooled. See, here's the thing. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. You can lie to God, but you cannot fool God. You can fool your friends. You can fool your family. You can fool me. You can fool the church. You can fool yourself even, but you can never fool God. He sees right through any mask that we might be wearing. He, go, he looks right at the heart all the time. And you know, it's easy for us when we read this passage to kind of point the finger at Ananias and Sapphira. Look at you guys. What is wrong with you being so hypocritical, being so deceptive? Before we do that, we should kind of look at our own lives a little bit here. We've got to recognize that we're all susceptible to temptation. We're all susceptible to sin. Any single one of us can fall into temptation of sin of all kinds. None of us are immune from hypocrisy. We're not immune completely from temptation and sin and Satan's attacks, right? That's why we're told in Ephesians 6, 11, you know, stay alert, put on the full armor of God because we need God's help. We can't do it on our own. We need God's help. Otherwise, we're going to fall prey to Satan's attacks and his schemes often. So let's look at ourselves first before we just point the finger at Ananias and Sapphira. Now, back to verse 4. Peter's still talking to them. He says, Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's talking about the land. 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. I mean, Peter, he's just like, dude, what were you thinking? Why have you done this? It was your land. Nobody came along and said, you have to sell that land now. And even when you did sell the land, nobody came along and said, you have to give it to the church now. Nobody forced you to do this, Ananias. You didn't have to do this. And you haven't just lied to me. You haven't just lied to the church. You've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, God Almighty. And you say, okay, so they lied to the church. So they lied to God. What happened then? What was the result of their lie? What was the result of their deliberate deception? Well, the next verses explain the result was divine judgment. Verses 5 to 6. This is intense. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Uh Uh-huh. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. He died. Right there. Like, this is a shocking event. This is a shocking passage. Ananias comes, says, here we go. And Peter goes, um, you're lying. Boom. Dead. Now, some people say, oh, it's possible that Ananias was really old. And upon hearing that he had lied to God, he, he, the shock of the news made him have a massive heart attack, and that's why he died. Okay, well, regardless of like the medical details of how this went down, everybody in the church un- would have understood this to be divine judgment. That you, don't, you don't mess with God. You, you can't just lie to God and get away with it. And it says, great fear came upon them. Hmm, I guess so. Now, verses 7 to 11, Sapphira comes in. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She doesn't know her husband has died. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. (sighs) Sapphira comes along. Imagine being Sapphira. She does not know that her husband has just died. And she's coming in. Hey, Peter, how's it going? Oh, hey, Sapphira. Question for you. This land that you sold, is this how much you got for it? Like, is this the amount that you sold it for? And she goes, yep, that's how much. And she dies. But here's the thing. Sapphira had her chance right here. This is her chance to come clean. She doesn't know what has happened. This is her chance to confess. This is her chance to say, you know, you know what? No, we actually sold it for more, and we're just giving this much, and we're keeping the rest. That would have been fine. Remember, that would have been fine. She had a chance. We always have a chance to be honest, right? She had the chance, but no, she goes along with the lie. And so then Peter tells her, well, your husband just died, and now you're going to die. And then she dies in church. Because this is intense, okay? 
Many people who, who read this passage, they study this passage, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa this, uh, you know, we don't like this. This is way too extreme. I mean, yes, lying is bad, and, and, and we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't try to deceive people, you know, all this kind of stuff. But don't you think it's a little much for people to just drop dead in church? Well, maybe, but it's important that we've got to remember it's not just that they lied, it's who they lied to, right? They lied to God. It was God that they had lied to. It was God that they offended. It was God that they had belittled. And we need to understand God is truth. And how much God hates, yes, hates, lies, deceit, deception. How much he hates it. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19, just an example. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, it's like arrogance, right? A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. There's a theme of deceit there. He hates deception. And in Acts chapter 5, he executes instantaneous judgment. He doesn't always do that. Thankfully, otherwise we'd have some problems here. Imagine if every single time we lied or deceived or did some kind of sin, boom, drop dead. Nobody would be here, including me. There would not be a gathering church. Okay? So this story also, if you're familiar with your Bible, it has a striking parallel to the story in Joshua 7 and Achan. In that story, if, you're not, if you don't, aren't familiar with it, Israel had just defeated Jericho, the walls of Jericho. It's, it's a big battle for them. They were told to gather all the plunder, all the treasure from Jericho, and, and bring it back to the camp all together. But Achan, a man, maybe thought that he wouldn't get caught, no one would notice. He kept back some of it for himself. He deliberately deceived. Oh, yeah, yeah, I grabbed it all. Yeah, yeah, I gave it away. And he kept some for himself. Achan's sin resulted in Israel's defeat in the next battle and ultimately in his death as divine judgment was also pronounced on him for his deliberate deception. So some similarities here. Okay, both stories occur at pivotal moments of their respective movements. Israel had just spent 40 years wandering the desert. They finally crossed the Jordan River. They're into the promised land. They've had their first military victory. Things are going great. And then, boom, internal problems. Achan's sin derails stuff. Okay? So now the church. The church, we're only in chapter 5 of Acts. The church is still just getting started. But it's, it's growing rapidly. It's experiencing crazy blessing, crazy success. As more and more people are joining the church, more and more people are hearing about Jesus. They've even had their first bout of persecution. They've endured that well, and now internal issues, trying to derail the church. Both involve deliberate deception, and both have like divine judgment as a result. God hates deception. He hates deceit. And as much as he hates deception and he hates deceit, it's important for us to remember how much he actually loves the church. How much he, he loves us. And let me explain for a second. Like, he loves the church way more than any of us ever will or ever could. 
And it's because of his love for the church that he works to purify the church. Okay? Jesus came. He lived. He died. He rose again. He gave up his life for the church, for this end. Ephesians 5 talks about this. Verse 26 to 27. Jesus said uh, that he gave himself up that he might sanctify her. Her is the church, okay? That he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Deception and hypocrisy are blemishes. And it's because of God's love for the church that he purifies and is removing these blemishes from us. Sometimes God works to purify and remove the blemishes drastically. Sometimes he doesn't. And so while Acts 5 is an intense moment, I think what would be wise for us is instead of being like, this story is crazy, I'm just moving on, I don't get it, and this makes me scared, whatever, next week please. Instead of doing that, what, would be, what we should do is take stock of our own lives. Recognize that we're prone to hypocrisy. And recognize that while God normally doesn't execute judgment in this way, instantaneously, that he is still the judge. That judgment is coming. That there's going to be a day where every single one of us are going to have to give account for our lives. That we're going to have to stand before God. Hebrews 9, 27 says that. It's appointed man to die once and then judgment. So what we should do is we should call out to God and say, please have mercy on us. Forgive us for when we're pretending. Forgive us for when we're deceiving. Forgive us when we're trying to put on a show and making, uh, make other people think that we're more spiritual than we really are. And then thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you that he paid the penalty of our sin. And that because of his work, faith in his work, not in anything that we can do or ever could do, but because of faith in his work, that on that judgment day, we will actually be able to stand because of his merits and be welcomed in to eternal life with God forevermore. Because of what he did, not for us. Right? This, this passage needs us to propel us into more and more thanks for who God is and what he's done. Thank you that you don't execute judgment instantaneously every time I screw up. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you I can stand in the judgment because of him. And we say, Lord, help us to flee hypocrisy. Help us to run away from deceit. Help us to be maybe more like Barnabas and less like Ananias. And there's one other thing that I want to highlight that I think Acts 5 illustrates. It illustrates what Ananias and Sapphira needed and what we need as well. What is that need? That need is a deeper application of the gospel. What, what do I mean by that? A deeper application of the, of the gospel. Well, this is understanding that Jesus doesn't only uh, forgive us. He doesn't only save us. He changes us. Okay? We need to get beyond the just, well, I believe in Jesus, so now heaven is taken care of. No, no, no. He gives us eternal life, but he also gives us new life now. Right? And so he gives us the ability to, to live this out. 
and, 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 and we're just use that power to use that new life to run from sin, to get away from moments of, of deliberate deceit. Like Acts 5, 4, and 9 lay out that Ananias and Sapphira, they planned this. This wasn't just a, oops, I gave in to sin. They planned to be deceitful. They intentionally decided to sin against the Lord. They gave in to the lies of the enemy instead of walking into the reality of the new life that Jesus gives. That No, 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 you don't have to believe those false promises anymore. Believe what I have done. You can live a new life now. Walk in newness of life. Say no to sin. Say yes to the Lord. And a deeper understanding, a deeper application of the gospel drives us to look at God and say, wow. Look at how amazing you are. And even though we've offended you, how gracious you are to forgive us. That should propel us to treasure him more and more and respond with lives of worship and ever-increasing obedience. Romans 12, 1, right? I urge you then, right? Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves up as living sacrifices. Holy Acceptable. This, this is your spiritual worship. Saying, when we grasp what God has done for us in Christ, and when the Holy Spirit fills our hearts, then, then we experience change. We're, we're changed. And, and not only are we you know, made righteous, declared righteous by putting our faith in Christ, but then our heart changes and we receive new desires and we want to follow him now. We want to live for him now. We want to surrender to him. We want to say yes to him. We want to say no to sin. And so we call out to God and say, please do this work in us. Reign in us. Purify us. Even though it hurts sometimes, keep filling us. We, we sang, fill us anew, we pray. Fill us with the Spirit. Help us to stay focused on what matters, right? The mission of God, to go and to be witnesses of Jesus so that more people will become disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. And when we have a deeper application of the gospel, we're also going to realize that beyond Jesus freeing us from the penalty of sin, he also frees us from this desire or this need of us having to pretend that we're something that we're not. We, we come as we are, warts and all, scars and all. Jesus frees us from needing praise from people. It doesn't matter anymore what they say, what they think. What matters is what God says, what God thinks. And according to God's word, if you are in Christ, man, you are holy, you are righteous, you are redeemed, you are loved. So Jesus frees us from that. Oh, I need their approval. I need their accolades. I need. No, you don't. You have the Father's. And that frees us from wanting to, to deceive, wanting to create a story, wanting to lie, and it leads us into this better way of life, honesty, authenticity, and even generosity. Ananias and Sapphira were living in known rebellion, contrived deception. It looks as though they were okay with their hypocrisy. We can't be. We can't be. A deeper application of the gospel is going to propel us to a life of self-examination, confession, and repentance. Like we've talked about, like, if we're just honest, which is a good thing to do in light of today's passage, we should just be honest, okay? We're all prone to be hypocrites at some level at some time. This happens. 
if we're just honest and, and we, we call that out, to say, you know what, we're, we're all guilty of this. But when we see that, when we recognize it, instead of trying to bury it, instead of trying to hide it, we say, we want to name it, we want to confess and say, Lord, oh, oh, I did it again. We want to confess it and say, Lord, help us to turn from this so that we can recognize it even sooner and, and not even go down that road and, and, and not even get trapped in this, in this nasty lie of hypocrisy. Run out to the Lord, call out for help. God, help us avoid the snare of hypocrisy. Help us to be wise, to see it coming, and to turn from that. We need your help. Guys, like, you can't do this on your own. We need God's help to, to believe the gospel every day, to live out the gospel every day, to apply the gospel every day. We need to ask him for help, and I'm going to encourage us to actually do that today, to, to do it now, together, if you're willing uh, in, in just a little bit, I'll ask you to stand up with me. And there's going to be some words that come up on the screen. Some of you, if you have it in your sermon notes, there's a prayer on there, a short prayer. It's simply a prayer that declares that we want to run from deception. We want to run from deceit. We want to pursue Jesus. We want to pursue honesty. In light of today's passage, though, I would encourage you, when I, when I invite, I'm going to invite us to stand. I would encourage you, if your heart's not there, don't just say the words. Right? If we've learned nothing else from this passage, God can see through our heart. We want this to be a genuine cry, a genuine prayer of authenticity. Yes, Lord, man, would you help me? Would you change me? I'm not there yet. I still have so far to go. Would you please work in me? So I invite you, uh, if you, if you're willing to stand, would you stand even right now? We're going to read the words together. We're going to read them slowly. We want this to come from our heart. And then when, when we're done, I'll ask you to, to remain standing. And then I'm also going to pray over everybody after this prayer is done. Okay, so we're going to read together. We're going to start one, two, three. Oh God. Show me any habits of deception in my life. I now renounce any lies I am using to make others think I am more spiritual than I really am. Cleanse me of all dishonesty and help me to pursue honesty. Help me to walk in the light as you are in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, you have heard our prayer here. The desire of our hearts, we pray, we are asking, is that you would work in us to remove deception, to remove lies, to remove hypocrisy. God, this passage is shocking to us. But if nothing else, may we glean from this passage that you are not to be trifled with that you take sin seriously, you take hypocrisy and deception seriously. So please, Holy Spirit, come, invade our hearts, reign inside of us so that we can recognize our, how prone we are to these things and to run from them and to run to you, Jesus. Thank you that you came, Jesus, that you, you paid the price for our Hypocrisy. You paid the price for our deception, our lies. 
that you rose again in victory, and you offer forgiveness, you offer new life, you offer eternal life, you set us free from having to live in sin. May we take hold of this new life that you offer. May we walk in it. May we leave this place changed. May we leave this place different than we came in with a renewed passion for you, a renewed passion to walk in honesty, to walk in holiness by your grace, by your strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.